I'm Jake Watson, and this is the Saints Unscripted podcast, where we have conversations about faith crisis, topics that may be triggering about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and the Gospel, church history, prophets, the Book of Mormon and the Bible, and so many other things. This is Season 1, Faith Crisis. That, that doubt that we're experiencing is actually helpful because maybe it's shaking loose our faith in the wrong thing, yeah. right? So our faith can be purified and refined to be focused on Christ, be focused on God, and not on the arm of flesh, not on other people. So Don, let's let's just jump right in. Sure. So you said the you know we had actually planned that faith crisis episode to be one episode, yeah. But then we got to about an hour, and you suggested <laughs> let's let's split it up into yeah. two. So maybe I can just open it up. What during kind of the thick of that faith crisis? What maybe as you have a kind of a better perspective now, and you're older, and you maybe know a lot more. What what would you what would have been helpful to you? And maybe what kind of tools could you have had? Or maybe you can just explain it a little better. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of things that I can think of on that question. Um, I mean, for one thing, one thing that I can think of, and this is not the main thing that I would address, but it's something that comes to mind, is um, one thing that would have been really helpful would have been for people around me to have certain understandings, right? And these are understandings that I think are becoming more common now, and there's certainly things that I try to explain to people since, like I mentioned in the previous episode, I'm now an ex-ex-Mormon, right? <laughs> yeah. So I've been through, I, I actually was, I should mention, I was very involved in the culture of ex-Mormonism. I went to the ex-Mormon conference, as it's called. Oh, which was, wow. Maybe still is. I don't know if they still have it, an annual conference. Um, I was involved in a lot of ex-Mormon social events and so on. Uh, so I was very much part of that subculture. Um, but um, in, uh, in Latter-day Saint culture in general, there are certain views, or at least there traditionally have been, of people who leave, right? And so um, there are explanations for why people leave, right? And so, of course, you know, it's because they were offended or because they wanted to sin, right? Um, so I wasn't offended, Right. Um, I uh, so let me be perfectly clear, right, about like what importance the church and my faith had in my life. It had been the absolute center of my life. I mean, it's why I started going into Mormon history that then raised all these questions because it was sacred history to me. Um, I I I majored in history. Uh, in college so that I could do church history because it was sacred history to me. I, you know, my day-to-day -day life um, had been, you know, structured around spiritual things. Um, you know, before I, like, really lost my faith, right, I would, like, devotionally read the Book of Mormon every morning. You know, I, I, I talked to God, right? I had spiritual experiences. Um, I, I would not have, like, thrown away the ultimate meaning of my life 
to to have coffee or to have beer or to have sex, right? Like that's that's that would have been way too big. Like like the thing that I would have been throwing away would have been so much more important to me than the thing that I was getting. That that would have been insane, right? Um, Good so, point. Um, uh, I got, uh, my family knew me better than to like make silly assumptions like that about me. Right. But sometimes, uh, there were other people that I encountered, particularly on the internet, who just made assumptions that I was like horror whore or something. Right. Because I no longer believed, you know, and, um, like, um, one thing that Latter-day Saints will notice um, often when someone is questioning or when they've stopped believing is that that person is no longer living the standards of the church. And then they'll say, well, that shows it, right? They, this fits a narrative for them. This confirms for them, well, that person just wanted to sin and that's why they don't believe anymore or why they're questioning. So, so um, let's take a step back from that narrative, okay? So suppose that I um, am a Muslim, okay? And as a Muslim, um, I'm not allowed to have, well, let me change that. Um, suppose that I'm an Orthodox Jew, okay? And as an Orthodox Jew, I'm not allowed to eat things that are not kosher, right? So I can't have a hot dog, right? And then let's say that like, I start having doubts about my faith and I start wondering if these kosher, does God really care whether I eat you know, a certain meat or not, you know, and, I, and I'm thinking that he doesn't care. And so maybe for the first time in my life, I start trying hot dogs, right? Now, another Orthodox Jew could come along and be like, well, you just question your faith because you wanted to eat hot dogs. But notice that the only reason why I wouldn't have eaten hot dogs in the first place, like, like almost everybody else does, is because my faith told me I shouldn't, right? So once I doubt that faith or don't believe that faith anymore, I have no reason to not eat hot dogs. So um, if you're a Latter-day Saint and you start having doubts about your faith, what reason do you have not to have coffee or something, right? I mean, because the only reason not to is like your faith tells you not to. So if you don't believe the faith anymore, you're not going to be following the prescriptions of the faith, right? And the covenants that, that you've made yeah. don't mean right. anything if well, you don't so, believe so people, in them right, anymore. So people yeah. say, well, what about like your covenants? Well, covenants are made with the understanding that that's what God wants you to do, right? right? So, so let's suppose there's some hypothetical faith that required me to covenant that I wouldn't eat hot dogs, right? right? But then I'm like, or, or, or something else, right? Like, they, they, I covenanted that I would give all my goods to this group or whatever, you know, and then I start believing, wait, this, this isn't real. This, I don't believe this anymore. If I don't think that is actually a covenant God's requiring of me, why would I still think I would need to do that? Like, it's like thinking I promised God something that God doesn't necessarily want from me. Why should I feel like I'm bound by that? God's going to hold me to that. Exactly, right? yeah. And so um, it's so easy for us to interpret people's actions in a way that's actually like self-serving because it keeps us from having to deal with them. 
on their own terms. It keeps us, it insulates us from saying, maybe they have some valid questions. If we don't acknowledge that they have any valid questions, we never have to deal with the questions, right? So that's a way of sort of insulating ourselves from ever having to deal with difficult questions. But what we're doing is we're passing judgment on them that's that we don't know if that judgment's warranted and we're commanded to not judge, right? So, um, like, uh, one thing that would have been helpful for me, right, would have been just for people to have a better understanding of why people actually leave as opposed to why, like, <laughs> reasons that they don't leave, okay? Mm, now, okay. someone who has promoted this in the church, this isn't just me saying this, go read uh, several years ago, uh, then uh, President uh, Dieter Uchtdorf's talk, Come Join With Us. It's a talk that's actually directed to people who left the church, okay? Um, but it taught, well, it's directed in part to people who left the church. It's also directed in part to people who are still in the church. And one of the things that it raises is the stereotype that people leave the church because they've been offended or want to sin, and he sweeps that aside, says that's not the case, and says some people just have genuine questions, you know? And so, you know, I feel really comfortable saying this, both from my own experience and from the fact that a member of the First Presidency has said it also in general conference, you know? I, I guess another thing I would add to that is people will ask, you know, like, about what about your spiritual experiences? You know, they would ask me when I was outside the church. They would either assume that I didn't have any experience, spiritual experiences, like I'd never had a testimony, or I would be like betraying my spiritual experiences, right? Like, and so the way that I saw it, right, was I had had spiritual experiences, but what I had come to believe when I was a doubter and then an atheist was that those experiences were generated by my own mind, that they didn't come from something outside of me, they came from inside of me. So some of those experiences were still very profound for me, right? But I thought those experiences didn't tell me something about the cosmos, they told me something about me, right? And so um, this just maybe to help people have a little more understanding of like where, how you see things depends on where you stand, right? Like um, both figuratively and literally, right? Wherever you're located, it's going to change your angle of vision. And people who are leaving the church or who have left the church, things look different to them, right? And um, the church has a remarkable way of creating a strong sense of identity for the people who are in it. And so something that you will see if you've got friends or family who leave the church is you'll often see them actively pushing against their former sense of Latter-day Saint identity. When they, when they stop believing, they almost feel psychologically like they have to push away from that identity, have to act contrary that, to that identity, or it doesn't feel like they're really leaving. So Every ex-Mormon has their stories about the first time they had coffee, the first time they had alcohol, the first time they went and bought regular underwear after wearing garments for years, right? Because those are all big psychological steps. If you stopped believing in the church completely, stopped considering yourself a Latter-day Saint, and you never had a sip of coffee, tea, 
alcohol, whatever, anything that was forbidden as a Latter-day Saint, you would feel like you were still a Latter-day Saint, even though you felt now like you weren't or didn't want to be, right? Like that wasn't really true anymore and that wasn't true, the truth of who you were anymore, consequently. And so when you see people, right, like, like people who are in the process of leaving the church often will deliberately act against that identity. This is the people who go on to the Recovery from Mormonism board, right, at exmormon.org, and they just, they spout all kinds of often, like, obscenities about journal authorities, and it just seems hilarious to them. That, for almost all of them, that's, it's terrible. It's, for almost all of them, it's just a phase. And pretty soon the anger will have passed, and they will feel psychologically like they've sort of pushed off against, sort of like, let me make an analogy, when children are growing up, when they become adolescents, right? When they feel like they're trying to become their own, a boy is trying to become his own man, kind of, right? Well, he doesn't want to like hug his dad too much or, right? Like, or I don't know, like, you know, he wants to do, be kind of rebellious some, right? To, to gain his own sense of identity. This is what people do when they lose their faith also. That doesn't mean that's where they're going to spend the rest of their lives, you know? And um, so, and, um, and now to, to kind of hit this from a different angle, right? Um, so, like, um, what, what would have helped me, aside from, like, um, other people's understandings being different, like what would have helped me in terms of my own understandings having been different. Um, one thing would be um, that th this is not the end of the world if you're having a faith crisis, no matter how much it seems like it is. Okay? And also um, doubt is normal and doubt is not terminal, by which I don't, by which I not only mean the doubt won't kill you, but I also mean that uh, doubt is not necessarily a resting place. That just because if you feel even that you've lost your faith, that doesn't mean that that's a permanent destination, right? Because there are in fact a lot of people who've been there. And this is not something that I um, think that I really had perspective on at the time. Uh, for one thing, I didn't realize how how common it was for people to, to some extent, one way or another, leave the church in return. So there's actually social science research uh, going back decades. This is not just recently with the younger generation or, or like with the, the recent sort of spate of, of faith crises, but there's research going back, um, I think at least 30 years, maybe, maybe 40, um, showing that most Latter-day Saints, at some point in their lives, go inactive, most. And most of those who go inactive return to activity later, okay? Wow. So as much as we have, as a culture, have looked at it as something really aberrant and unusual, right, to go inactive, actually, most of us who are active Latter-day Saints after like a certain maybe age or point in life, will have gone inactive and become active again, you know? So, so in fact, it's not unusual, right? It's, it's very frequent. It happens, happens all the time, 
you know? And as I mentioned, like, doubt is normal, right? Like, doubt, and we, this is something that I think we could talk about for a long time and in a lot of different ways. But like, doubt is um, part of a larger process, even, of faith, I would say, or growing in faith. Think about the scriptures, right? Um, even Jesus' disciples lost faith after the crucifixion. The twelve, right? Um, the twelve had lost faith in him as the Messiah. And these are the people who had been traveling with him the whole time. You know, some of them, three of them had been with him at the Mount of Transfiguration, where they'd seen him transfigured. They'd seen, you know, Moses and Elijah come down, right? And he had been talking about it, his whole ministry. Hey, right. I'm going to yeah. Right. And then, and Peter was one of those guys up in the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter denies him three times, right? But when he's executed when he's crucified they're like oh yeah like wow what happened you know and two of his disciples were on the road to Emmaus right after he's crucified and Jesus appears right and he's talking with them but they don't they don't recognize him yet the, the risen Christ and they say to him this is what it's recorded at the end of Luke right they say to him there was this man who worked these mighty wonders and so on. We thought he was the Christ. We thought he was the Messiah. But then he was crucified. So they're saying, they're, they're admitting, unwittingly telling Jesus himself, yeah, we lost our faith in Jesus because he got crucified, so he can't be the Messiah. And then Jesus, like, shows them, right? Like, tells go through the scriptures with them to tell, show them what would happen with the Christ, that he would be crucified, he would die, he would rise, right? And then they're able to see who he is, and then he's gone, right? So um, on, the, on Friday, right, the disciples' Messiah was crucified, and they believed that all was lost, right? And then on Sunday... He rose and their faith was restored, right? So if right now, right, an application for us, right, if right now you are in doubt about the gospel, if today is the Friday of your faith, right, hold on to him, right, because Sunday is coming, right? Like, like don't lose hope. Just, you know, doubt and even non-belief don't mean it's the end, this is, this is the same thing that happened with Jesus' own disciples, right? It doesn't make you aberrant. It doesn't mean this is the end of the journey, you know? So, so I would also say that like, doubt can be um, a part of growing in faith and even like purifying our faith, um, especially if we've had faith, if we centered our faith on the wrong things, right? Because our faith ultimately is really supposed to be centered on God, right? And sometimes we like to pray, place our faith other places and we get disappointed, you know? Um, so, for example... Yes, wow. Right. Yeah. We place our faith... That really on, spoke to me there. Yeah. We, we place our faith on other people, right? And yeah. this is... You and I both have some... You mentioned in the last episode, like, some questions about prophets, right? Like, and and... And I, just because I come back to the church doesn't mean like, like everything's that doesn't fine. Mean all all, all nice my, all my questions are answered. 
It's you so know, easy like, to believe now. <laughs> like every, I've, I've got everything makes sense now, you know, and like, <laughs> you know, like, like, like there's still an ongoing journey, right? That's the way that life works. It's the way mortality works. Um, and so like when we put our faith directly on people, including prophets, right, that, that can be a problem, you know? So, uh, one thing that um, I would want to mention, maybe as an aside, about prophets is they, there is an ex-Mormon narrative about Latter-day Saint prophets. And that ex-Mormon narrative is, um, you can find this all over the internet or talking with you know, a great many ex-Mormons. Ex-Mormon narrative tends to be that like they all know it's a fraud, that somehow once you become like a general authority, like... I don't know, maybe you're like initiated into the fact that like, you know, like, psst, right, like, it's all fake, right? Like that at some point they all Here's know. Here's your paycheck. And, yeah. then, and they're just all in it for money or something, right? Which like, if they're in it for money, like we actually know something about what they get paid. Right. And they get paid like an itty bitty fraction of like what President people, Nelson like, as a surgeon. <laughs> right. Like Went through a huge pay cut. Also, right. Also, like. The president of the church gets paid the same amount as every other general authority. Wow! They they all I get paid. This, they all That's get cool. paid the same amount. The general authority stipend is the same for all so of they them. Can't be in it for the money, right? And they work crazy hours. They do. They give their whole lives to yeah. it, right? Um, but um, I know that this ex-Mormon narrative is wrong, okay? Because I'm a historian of Mormonism, right? So I've looked at yeah. journals and letters and other records of general authorities from Joseph Smith on up, right? And everything in their private writings and records and communications shows that they, they don't absolutely believe it, you know? So, so you can scratch that one off. Wow, that's that, cool. That, that's just not the case. Right? Nice. Okay. okay. Um, if I ever hear that from somebody, I'll be like, <laughs> actually, my friend Don Bradley, he, uh, he did all this stuff, and uh, that's actually not, and that can be scratched off the list. Well, here, yeah. You, you want to know another one you can scratch off yeah. the list? Yeah. Okay. So how about the idea that um, they've got all these records in the church archives that are restricted because they have damaging things. Oh, yeah. Church. I've heard that. Okay. So you've interviewed Brian and Laura Hales. Yeah. Okay. And you probably know that I did most of the research yeah. for the volumes that they published. I found most of the sources. And I remember reading in one of the volumes that it was like, oh, and Don Bradley had access to so-and-so-and-so. Right. And so. I can't quite remember. It's been a while, but anyway, sorry. So there were um, of hundreds of sources that I looked at at the church archives, probably several hundred, because um, Brian's books quote a total of like 1,500 sources. But... Uh, uh, like, like there were, there were some, there were several at least, I don't remember the number, it was a fraction of them, but there were a number that were restricted, right? So oh, to your access. So, 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 so you have to request access for oh. them. They're not just general public access. You okay. have to specially request it and then you have to grant it, right? Oh, okay. So I would inquire about these restricted access records, you know, and in each case, the pattern was the same every single time. I would request access to the record. The person who worked there would look it up and they'd find out, okay, 
Well, this one's re restricted because it's in this category. It's in that category. They were restricted based on categories. Okay. okay. So categories are like sacred would be one category. Private would be another category. Okay. okay. So um, sacred would be like it has um, temple content in it okay. or it has a patriarchal blessing, which is considered not something for the general public, right? Um uh, private would be like records of somebody's church discipline, right? Okay. Because even though that person's dead, like as far as we're concerned, they they didn't cease to exist when they're dead. Right. They're, they're still around. They're just in the spirit and world. And their descendants. And so they have, the, the church sees them as still having rights of privacy, right? We don't want to like publish their sins if, if great, you know, your great, great, great grandpa was excommunicated for adultery, <laughs> like we don't, they don't want a historian to come in and like, you yeah. know, look at his excommunication record and like publish that or something, because what does that have to do with everybody else? Right. That's between him yeah. and God, right? So um, I would always be told, well, okay, what category the, the restriction was from. And then I would need to just explain and just just affirm I don't want the temple content in this record I'm not here to I, I would even I wouldn't even be told I couldn't look at that content I would be told I I could look at it I could even transcribe it but I couldn't oh. publish it okay, okay? Um, why I to play it safe I never even transcribe that kind of content right but like um, like it was like temple stuff or whatever, right? But like, um, so when you think about it, and in every case, I was granted access to the records, okay? And recall that I was researching Joseph Smith and polygamy, okay? Now the ex-Mormon narrative is records are restricted and held back because they contain controversial or damaging material, right? In actual fact, the records were restricted because they contained sacred or private material. And I just had to say to the people working there, you know, no, I don't want to look at the temple content. I just want to look at the stuff that's about how Joseph Smith had lots of wives. And then like, oh, okay. If you just want to look at the stuff about Joseph Smith having lots of wives, then that's fine. <laughs> right? <Wow. laughs> And then I was granted access. Wow. So the idea that they're like, they've like deviously got all this information hidden and restricted because it's damaging. It's, I can tell you from experience, researching the restricted records, that that's not true. That's not true. Okay. Now back to our main topic. Here. Oh, okay. cool. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you for sharing that though. Yeah. What yeah. a cool, yeah. what a cool little segment we just had there. Yeah. Things to scratch off and maybe future <laughs> episodes we'll talk about more of that. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, so, so prophets. Um, so I, I remember reading the Bible as a teenager and particularly reading in Genesis and um, the people I was reading about were very troublesome people. Um, like uh, the sons of Jacob, um, they did some terrible things. Um, the the whole weird story of Judah and Tamar, oh, the yeah. story of like the the um, 
guy from Shechem like rapes Dinah and then like the, the like terrible revenge that her brothers, like two of Jacob's sons exact for that. And then like, I'm just reading other parts of the Bible, right? Like David, right? With his adultery and murder. And like, yeah. you know, I mean, Solomon, the wisest man yeah. in the world, like, you know, like is like setting up idols in God's temple. He builds a temple to God, but then he ends up like promoting the worship of other gods in that temple. And like, like where are the heroes in this story, right? right? Like, excuse me, later on in life, I even, I was reading um, something uh, in some biblical scholarship about Abraham. Abraham's like, what can you find fault with Abraham about, right? Like, well, I actually was reading that, you know, there are parts of Genesis where, It'll say, like, the Lord told Abraham, go to whatever, go to Canaan, right? And then the next thing it says is, like, and Abraham got his camels or whatever, and he went to such and such a land and such and such a land, and you just assume those lands are, like, on the way to Canaan. Well, the scholar actually showed that they were in the opposite direction. <laughs> Whoa. So God tells Abraham, go to Canaan, and Abraham just takes off the other way. <laughs> Right? Like, even even Abraham, like, right? I don't like, want to go over there. <laughs> like, like, even Abraham's not like this untarnished hero, right? And um, so, so this is decidedly not a book of heroes. And by the way, there's a fantastic song, a Christian song called Dirt by a group called The Collective. Okay. Beautiful, amazing song that actually makes this point really really well cool. it's about like the these all these figures from the bible and it's about grace cool. right Sweet. um so like the 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 bible is not a book of heroes because the bible is a book of one hero right the hero of the bible is not adam it's not noah right uh, it's not abraham it's not david it's not solomon it's not any of these guys right it's god Hero of the Bible is God, and particularly then in the New Testament, it's God in Christ, right? And um, so we tend to look at prophets, right? And we want them to be exemplars, right? So we look at, you know, um, prophets in our history, maybe particularly Joseph Smith, right? And we want him to be like absolutely sterling, like like any any faults need to be like really, really minor. We're willing to acknowledge that prophets have faults. Um, we're willing to acknowledge it sort of theoretically, right? But what we want that to mean is, well, maybe sometimes he had arguments with Emma, right? We want it to be like really minor stuff. But when it comes to like actual sin, we don't want that, right? So Justice Smith says, I think this was, I think he said it the year he died. Um, Justice Smith said, um, I'm trying to think of his words. I do not want you to think that I am a very good man. I am not. There was one good man and he was Christ, right? Mm, and we cool. want to look at that and we want to be like, oh, he was being so humble, right? <laughs> like, like he didn't really have any problems in particular with sin, right? But I don't know. Why don't we maybe take him at his word, right? That like, he's like everybody else, you know? Like he has no, like, he has like actual problems with sin, right? And so um, 
prophets are not exemplars, right? Prophets are people to help us understand God's will, but they're not exemplars. We can maybe sometimes gain some inspiration from great things that they do, but we have an exemplar. Yeah. And it's it's not them. It's Christ, right? We don't need them to be exemplars. They weren't there's nothing in the scriptures that says take the prophets as your moral exemplars. Absolutely nothing. There's a lot that says to follow the example of Christ and that he was the only sinless person, right? So when we set up prophets as the object of our faith, right? That's like setting up idols. Ooh. You know? Whoa. And so calling if, me out. I'm just kidding. If our faith is being shaken by the fact of prophets' sins, right? Their errors, then maybe that's that doubt that we're experiencing is actually helpful because maybe it's shaking loose our faith in the wrong thing. Yeah. Right? So our faith can be purified and refined to be focused on Christ, be focused on God, and not on the arm of flesh, not on other people. Wow. That's a, that's a great perspective right now for me. Like, the whole point of me trying to do this uh, season on faith crisis was to talk with experts in various fields, right? And gain perspectives and, you know, knowledge to kind of navigate this faith crisis and figure out kind of how to figure out how to fix some of these problems or at least deal with them or find a way through them or live with them anyway. And uh, that was such an insightful thought. Okay. Having doubt. Wow. See, I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to wrap my head around that because that makes a lot of sense to me. And I've had several moments during this time where things just really make sense and they feel so true. And that was one of them that if I'm experiencing doubt in prophets or kind of the administrative church stuff or maybe the church in general, and maybe that's, wow, maybe that's, wow, that's giving me an opportunity to, wow, oh my gosh, focus my faith more on God and Christ. That's really cool. Wow. Oh, I just want to take a moment and just <laughs> sit with that because that was fantastic, Don. Um, and I feel like, cause my, you know, my final question was to ask you, like, how do you stay a believer? Like, yeah. what do you, what do you do to stay faithful? Because sometimes it's, it, you know, it, it can be really hard. Like I've had spiritual experiences that really uplift me and, and strengthen my faith. But, and I know you kind of answered that and that'll help me in the future, knowing doubt. And I can already tell some people commenting like, okay, you have an issue with the church. I guess the answer is to just hide it and put it in a shelf and never think about it again because, you know, whatever. But wow, I, I think that it's, it's, I'd like to hear your thoughts. And you, you kind of gave a good thought of, you know, my future perspective on things with doubt and shaking my faith that it's falsely given to men or prophets or whatever other than God in Christ. And so could you explain kind of how you stay and, and also maybe touch on a little bit of the perspective that you wish you would have had and possibly offer that perspective to our viewers that might be sure. struggling with similar things? Sure. So, so first to, to more of the perspective that I wish I'd had and that I think um, would be helpful, I mean, you know, might be helpful for some others. Um, 
So you had mentioned Stephen Jones. Yeah. Who says his name was? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of things that God does that are um, ways that God works that don't, they don't necessarily make obvious sense. Um, so God, God works in the world. God has worked through history. God works through providence, right? Like um, shaping events. And we know that like ultimately God wins, right? This, this all comes out well, right? But a lot of the time it's difficult to tell what is God doing in the interim? Like how is he getting to this this win at the end, you know? Yeah. And um, like if you, um, like suppose you'd been part of the early Christian church, right? And then you had watched apostasy happen. Well, how could that possibly happen? I mean, like Jesus came and he set up a church. Like, how could that fall away? Like, like, you know, <laughs> I mean, yeah. this is, no, Jesus set this up, right? Um, or um, I remember a sermon. Um, I don't remember the details, but I remember like something that struck me from a sermon of Joseph Smith, where he was talking about like all the different nations of the earth, right? I think he, I think he like named some of them. And he was talking about like God's providence, how God like, in sort of like his mysterious providence, he gave to each nation all that he thought they should have, like in terms of like like knowledge, right? And you think about it, like why is it that some nations know so much about God and some nations don't, right? Like um, even think about like, um, I don't know, Christ... Um, if you look at the history of ancient Israel, it's clear that their understanding that there was going to be a Messiah gets clearer and clearer as you get closer to the time of Christ. But if you go back far enough before Christ, they don't have a clear conception of the Messiah. Well, why not? I mean, like, for, for all of the prophecies that are fulfilled by Christ— there could have been a lot more that were a lot clearer, you know, that like, um, I know we have some like in the Book of Mormon that, that mention him by name, but like, um, I don't know, like they don't, they don't have that in the, in the Hebrew Bible, you know, um, like God doesn't always do things in the most straightforward possible way. Like I look at the world around us, I think, confirms that right yeah. there's a lot of stuff that if i were god right yeah. I, I think to myself it wouldn't be this way yeah obviously if i were god i would know so much more than i do right now that like who knows what my perspective would be if right? i was god i'd make disney make the star wars movies better <laughs> <laughs> all kinds of things yeah. i'd do if i were god right <laughs> but like um so there's there's real mystery in the way that god works in the world and as latter-day saints Often we don't like mystery. We like to think that mystery is just like something that other Christians believe in. That they say God is mysterious, but to us, God just makes perfect sense, right? God's just like us and, and so on, you know. But like the scriptures talk about God's ways being mysterious, 
you know? Um, and so I guess what I'm getting at is that, well, it, it might seem obvious to us that um, prophets in scripture or prophets more recently should rise to a certain level of perfection um, personally, or that God should always be telling them exactly uh, the things that should be done in the world or that we think should be done, you know. Um, and then that doesn't necessarily happen that way. Um, I don't know, God's, if you look through history, I think God's workings have always been mysterious, you know, like, yeah. um, and so one of the things that I kind of come to accept, at least partly, is that like, I, I'll let God be God and I'll just be me, right? You know, instead of me trying to be God, you know? And um, so, I don't know, that that might be helpful yes. <laughs> for others too. Um, I, um, and, and obviously I think it would have been really helpful for me to have that perspective um, because um, I just think we have ideas of how God needs to work. Like God would only work in this way or God would only work through a yeah. person who rises to uh -huh. this level of righteousness. And we're sort of implicitly telling God what to do. Why exactly does God like, like, look around. The world is a really complex and messy yeah. place. Do, does the world really want, run the way that I think it would, you know, if I were God? It doesn't. I can tell you that, right? Um, and so maybe God doesn't work the way that I would decide, you know? Yeah. Hmm. And so That's we cool. should be careful about limiting God. I really like you know? that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so um, I guess things that I would um, say again, like would have been helpful to me are things that um, things I think could be useful for other people. You know, one of the things that um, I wish I had done more was to just hold on to the good that I had um, in even through a faith crisis, because it's easy, it is easy to like throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? Um, what are the things in your experience, right, within your faith? What are those things that have worked? What are the things that are, are clearly good? You know, excuse me, don't, you know, if there are things that you've lost faith in, don't throw out the things that you, that you recognize are good with those things, you know, hold on to whatever is good and um, like, and, and make use of those things, those positive things still in your life, right? Still, still enact those, right? Still live those. Um, one of the things that really helped me actually, I, I forgot to mention it as part of my story, but it was really significant for me, uh, was gratitude. Um, so, before I um, before I came to believe in God again, um, I'd been reading in positive psychology, 
And um, I had read about gratitude. I'd read a wonderful book by uh, the biggest expert on the psychology of gratitude, uh, study of gratitude, uh, Robert Emmons, who is himself um, very much a Christian, a devout Christian. Um, but he'd really taken a scientific approach, right? And there have been hundreds of studies about gratitude that he synthesized in this book. And I came to really see how what a beautiful thing gratitude was and how um, how much it, it contributes to our lives and how, as he describes, gratitude is just the truest approach to life. Like none of us created ourselves. None of us created the world around us. None of us got to be where we are in life just by ourselves. You know, we were all taken care of by parents, taught by teachers, you know, helped by 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 doctors, right, and other other kind, you know, caring people in our lives, and um, so like to be grateful is to live in truth. It's to recognize this fact that you know our life is is filled with gifts, and so I started. Uh, I was an atheist at this point, but I started really. This really took for me, and I started trying to practice gratitude more keeping a gratitude journal, for instance. And um, that actually made some real changes in my life. Um, I didn't just suddenly start believing in God, but I did um, I did want to have more of a place to direct my gratitude to, you know? And gratitude helped me to become happier. And here's something that I think people do not understand, I did not understand. A lot of times when you're going through a faith crisis, um, you become really unhappy, or you become miserable, right? Because you're, the, the issues you're dealing with are so weighty, you know? And that's, that's what I went through too, you know? Um, but there is research. So positive psychology is a part of psychology where instead of just studying how the human mind goes wrong, like disorders, like depression or schizophrenia or whatever. They study how does the human mind go right? What are the positive emotions? What are the character strengths that human beings have? How do we cultivate those? And so on, right? What, what makes people happy and why? And so on. And in research in positive psychology has shown that happiness, that, like, that depression literally gives us tunnel vision, literally and figuratively, whereas happiness actually opens up our perception so we can be aware of more possibilities. So they've done these like brilliant experiments where they've had instructed people to look at, well, first they've done things to induce either a negative mood or a positive mood, right? So like for to induce a positive mood, they leave a $10 bill outside the door of the place the study is. So, you know, if you find, you find money that like brightens your mood, right? Um, for, to induce a negative mood, they make the people wait a long time in a room that's like where there's loud construction going on or like irritating things, right? Um, then they would instruct them to look forward at this screen and, you know, like answer questions about what's on, on the screen. But in the meantime, they would put um, flashing lights over to the side in their peripheral vision. They asked the people afterward if they had noticed the lights over here, and the people who were in a bad mood didn't, and the people who were in a good mood did. So 
there are other experiments like this where they show that people in a good mood are able to be more creative. They can think of more options than people who are in a bad mood, right? That the more uh, we're caught in negative emotion, the less creativity we have, right? So if you're ever in depressed, you know there's a kind of tunnel vision effect, right? You can't see anything but the things that are making you miserable, you know? So you get fixated on that. The only memories that you can remember really are the memories of bad stuff, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and, and that's a, a figurative tunnel vision effect of depression, but there's also even a literal tunnel vision effect. Like our senses don't work the same when we're wow. miserable, right? We can't see as widely. So part of the problem for me when I'd been trying to make faith stuff work as I was losing my faith was I was miserable about it all. And the more I was miserable, unfortunately, the more I had tunnel vision and the less I was able to think creatively about things to figure them out, right? Have a, a wider view of the possibilities. So when I started practicing gratitude more, I became happier. And the more I became happy, the more I was able to see different possibilities. So that um, when I finally got to the point where I was making these you know, discoveries about the first vision, and the lost pages and so on, I was also at a really happy place in my life. And there were issues about faith that for years I'd been trying to figure out, things I'd been trying to make fit together that I hadn't been able to make work for years. And then within a matter of weeks, I was able to make things fit, right? Like well enough for me that I could, you know, wholeheartedly come back into the church, you know? And partly that was just because I'd become happier, you know? So like, don't, like happiness isn't like unimportant. Happiness isn't fluff, you know? Happiness is important not only because it feels good, right? But happiness is important because it helps us to function well. It helps us to function at our best. It helps us to think at our best, right? So, so, so to get caught in like a downward spiral right, with a faith crisis, right, can like, well, let me put it this way, to, to over-focus maybe on the, the anxieties, the, the, the fears and things that come with a faith crisis can lead to a kind of downward spiral, you know? Um, so don't, don't let that happen, right? The, the, like arrest that slide, right? Like think about like wh what are the good things that you want to hold on to, right? What are the things that you are sure about or that you're confident you want to embrace, that you want to put into practice? Make sure you're putting those things into practice in your life. Make sure you're focusing on those things, right? Like, like have gratitude, right? Like, I mean, honestly, President Nelson's message to us in the middle of this insane 2020 year, like, like to have gratitude and to, to give a prayer of gratitude that he did for, for the whole world, all of humankind, that's, that's something prophetic, right? Because like we're living in a time when it's so easy to fixate on the negative. And what does that do? It snowballs the negative, you know? Um, let's break that chain, you know? And um, I would say um, 
particularly to, to hold on to Christ, right, to recognize his love. Um, and this is something that in, in various ways, like I've experienced his love and um, it's, it's overwhelming, you know. I've lived life in different ways. I've lived life um, with Christ and I've lived life without Christ. And I can tell you which one is worth doing, you know. Um, there's a uh, passage in First Nephi when uh, Lehi's had his dream and um, then that dream is being um, interpreted for Nephi. Um, and Nephi is asked, um, do you know the meaning of the tree? And he says um, uh, that he, um, I'm sort of changing the order of his words, but uh, he says, I do not know the meaning of all things, but I know that God loves his children. All right. That's an anchor. That's something to hold on to, right? Um, you know, do do we understand, you know, like, why would God allow, like, blacks to have the priesthood withheld from them, right? Uh, and for the idea that like, they're, like, cursed, <laughs> you know, yeah. to, to hold sway in the church. Um, and, like, a host of other things that have happened, right? Um, mm, no, you know, there are a lot of things that happen in the church and in the world that I don't understand, you know. But like holding on to the fact that like he loves us, you know, and that um, like that love is demonstrated in the fact that like Christ, you know, who like um, in um, the Book of Mormon, right, it, it, it makes it really clear who God is, right? On the title page, Jesus is the Christ, the eternal God, right? And Benjamin and Abinadi both testify of this, right? That God himself will come down, right? So Jesus isn't just like someone who's on our level, right? Jesus is a divine. This, this is, you know, the scriptures are calling him God. And uh, yeah, he comes down to our level, right? And he come, even comes down like below our level, right? And like, if you read the mythologies of different religions, there's always a guy who's like up up top, right? There's always like a, a chief god, right? Who sits at like the, on the top of the mountain or right on the highest throne, right? And yeah. everybody like serves that guy or whatever, right? Um, that guy never comes down and serves everybody else, ever, ever. But... That's what Jesus does. He comes down and he says, whoever is greatest among you, let him be your servant, right? Here we have a God who comes down and washes our feet. Yeah. What? You know? And so, um, like, hold on to that love that he has for us. Um, and um, I don't know I guess one of the big things, maybe just sort of close up what I'd say on this, um, 
one of the big things that I would say to my past self, if I could go back now, and that I'd say to others is, you don't have to have it all figured out. Like, you don't have to have it all figured out. Partly, remember, at no moment are you actually really going to have it all figured out, even if you think you do. Like, life is bigger than that. It's more complex than that. You'd have to have a God's eye view to have it all figured out, and you're not going to have that in this world, you know? Um, so don't feel like you have to have it all figured out. You, you are on a journey with God, right? You're like It's like Christ, like Christ's disciples walking with him, right? Um, we're not meant to have the whole picture right now. Um, and we don't have to see where this is all, where everything's going to end up, where it all started and where it all goes, right? But we need to have this, the, the faith, the trust to walk with him on the road that he's taking us on. This is a Saints Unscripted original podcast and is hosted and executive produced by me, Jacob Watson, and Saints Unscripted. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. We'll catch you next time. <laughs>